All right, we're going to turn our attention uh, in the first session this afternoon to Islam. And then after we take our break, we'll close our session today with a look at what every Christian should know about same-sex attraction. So we're going to look at Islam, and I want to start uh, by reading a lead to a story that appeared a while back in the New York Times. And the title of the story is ISIS Enshrines a Theology of Rape. Of what? Rape. Rape. Okay. Here's how the opening paragraphs go. And this took place in Iraq. In the moments before he raped the 12-year-old girl, the Islamic State fighter took the time to explain that what he was about to do was not a sin. Because the preteen girl practiced a religion other than Islam, the Quran not only gave him the right to rape her, it condoned and encouraged it, he insisted. He bound her hands and gagged her, then he knelt beside the bed and prostrated himself in prayer before getting on top of her. When it was over, he knelt to pray again bookending the rape with acts of religious devotion. The story goes on and on to talk about the tale of the ISIS fighters who believe they are following the Quran, which gives them the right to rape, imprison, or sell into slavery uh, any woman who is not a Muslim. Now, a couple days after that, a Muslim wife and mother responded in USA Today. And her article is titled, There is no holy rape in Islam. And she says, As a Muslim woman and mother of young daughters, I shudder while reading accounts of ISIL's brutality. Rape inflicts the deepest physical and psychological wounds on a woman. It is unquestionable that this grave human rights violation finds zero tolerance in Islamic scripture. So which one is right? Uh, is the Islamic State's view correct, that takes a more literal reading of the Quran? Um, or is the wife and mother's response more correct that says Islam does not tolerate that sort of thing? Well, the answer is that depends. Islam is not a monolithic religion uh, any more than Christianity or any other belief. There are diverse beliefs within that. I would say that if you look at the life of Muhammad, who is considered the perfect man or the perfect example of a man, and you look at what the Quran and the Hadith, the sayings and the deeds of Muhammad are, and you take a literal understanding of them, particularly how Muhammad lived his life, you would have to side with the ISIS fighters, that that is a more correct understanding of the Quran. Nevertheless, many Muslims today would be horrified by that and would say, we don't believe that and practice it. That just gives you some idea of some of the tension that exists within Islam today. Not every 
one of the 1.6 million Muslims <clears throat> believes exactly the same thing or practices their religion in exactly the same way. So what we're going to try to do this morning, or rather this afternoon, is to look at probably the broadest understanding and acceptance of Islam, what it is and what it teaches. Did you say 1.6 billion? Billion. billion. Okay. 1.6 billion Muslims in the world today. Now, if you'll go to the next slide. There we go. The stories that I just read to you also bring up the question of, well, ISIL or ISIS or the Islamic State uh, not only engages in this type of activity, but they have, for a couple of years, brutally swept through uh, the Middle East, trying to establish... Okay. Uh, which leads to the question, is Islam a religion of peace? Uh, as I've mentioned before, uh, we're not here for the purpose of bashing Muslims any more than we're here for the purpose of bashing Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, however, uh, when we look at the religion of Islam, uh, what the Quran teaches, what the Hadith teaches, which are the sayings and the deeds of Muhammad, what the Sirah or the biography or the life of Muhammad teaches, here I think are some very simple and plain truths. Islam is a false religion founded by a false prophet worshiping a false god following a false set of allegedly divinely revealed revelation. It promotes a false worldview. It proclaims a false gospel. And it enslaves 1.6 billion people in spiritual darkness. And Islam is committed to global domination. All right, if you'll go to the next slide. The word Islam simply means submission. Uh, and to be a Muslim is one who submits to the will of Allah. Uh, the goal of Islam is global domination. In other words, the purpose of Islam is to bring the entire world into submission to Allah by whatever means prescribed by the authoritative writings of Islam. So that may be by conversion, by evangelizing and converting people to Islam. Uh, that also can include uh, creating second-class citizens of Muslims and Jews giving them some degree of freedom uh, in return for them paying a tax and submitting to the superiority of Islam. Uh, or it may require forced slavery, uh, forced sex trade, uh, and it can include uh, exterminating or eliminating those who will not convert 
and who will not agree to becoming second-class citizens. But Islam itself, the name means submission, and a Muslim is one who submits to the will of Allah. Next slide, please. Okay, a few facts about Islam. Islam is the youngest major religion in the world. Uh, it was established uh, in the seventh century uh, by Muhammad and uh, with uh, it's much younger than Christianity, it's much younger than Buddhism, it's much younger than uh, Hinduism, and so it's the youngest major religion. It is also a fast-growing religion. Uh, today there are about 1.6 billion Muslims, and it is a religion of global domination. Again, Islam's purpose will be fulfilled when the entire world is brought into submission to Allah. All right, next slide, please. I'm going to share some information from the Pew Research Center, um, which did a comprehensive survey two years ago, and these are some of the results that they found. Uh, Islam will grow faster than any other religion between now and 20. Uh, according to Pew and their survey, uh, no other religion will grow as quickly over the next 30 to 35 years as Islam. The Muslim population uh, will grow uh, significantly as well. It will grow by 73% by 2050 from 1.6 billion to 2.8 billion. Um, let me uh, back up a little bit as well uh, just to fill some of the other information in. When we talk about how populous Islam is, uh, according to Pew, India will have the largest Muslim population of any country in the world by 2050. Currently, India has the fourth largest Muslim population uh, the largest Muslim population is in Indonesia, of all places. Um, and that is followed by uh, uh, Bangladesh and I think Pakistan, if I'm not mistaken. But Islam is growing very fast in India, so India will overtake Indonesia by 2050. And by 2050, Christians and Muslims will make up nearly equal shares of the world's population. Uh, Christianity claiming about 31% by 2050, and Islam claiming almost 30% by 2050, according to Pew. Okay, next slide. According to Pew, Islam will be the world's major religion by 2070 if current trends continue. Next slide. What are some reasons for that? Well, as Pew looked at the data, they said there are three primary reasons. First of all, uh, higher fertility rates. Uh, Islam is dominant in nations of the world that have higher birth rates than other countries on the earth. So there's going to be organic growth. And if you are born into a Muslim family, you are a Muslim. That's how Islam defines that. So if you have a mother uh, and a father who are Muslim when you are born, 
you are Muslim right from the get-go. You don't decide to become a Muslim at some point in your life. You already are by the nature of being born into a Muslim family. Secondly, the size of youth populations. I was astounded at this. Uh, according to Pew, um, 34 percent, 34% of all Muslims in the world are under the age of 15. So you think about that. You talk about 30 per, 30, a third, one out of every three Muslims being under the age of 15 and having higher fertility rates, uh, that's naturally going to lead to organic growth in Islam. People are just going to be born into that faith. But then I think the third reason is very interesting. It's called religious switching. Religious switching, and that means you leave one religion and join another religion. And according to Pew, um, over the next 30 to 35 years, Islam will in experience a net increase of 3.2 million people uh, by religious switching. In other words, there will be 3.2 million people more that decide to convert to Islam than who leave the faith. Now, that's not a huge number, considering that there are 1.6 billion Muslims. But here's the interesting one. According to Pew, in that same period of time, between now and 2050, Christianity will experience a net loss of 66 million Christians. In other words, there will be 66 million more people who decide to leave Christianity than who convert to Christianity from another faith. And that's why Pew says it looks like the trends are that Islam is catching up and by 2070 will actually overtake Christianity as the world's major religion. Next slide, please. All right, a little bit about the history of Islam. Islam was founded by an Arabian visionary by the name of Muhammad. He was born in 570 AD or thereabouts, and he was born in the city of Mecca in what is known today as Saudi Arabia. Uh, Muhammad, uh, his parents died very early in life. He was raised by a grandparent who then died and then was ultimately raised by an uncle who was a wealthy and well-respected um, businessman in Mecca. And uh, he ran a successful business, traveled some. Muhammad got to travel some with him. And uh, there in Mecca, it was an important crossroads. Uh, it was an important business center. But also in Mecca, uh, there was a, uh, it was the center of religious worship on the Arabian Peninsula. There was a huge cube-shaped structure called the Kaaba, and inside the Kaaba, there were idols for the 360 different tribal gods that were worshipped throughout the Arabian Peninsula. So throughout the year, the different tribes on the Arabian Peninsula would come into Mecca to honor or worship their tribal god. Well, 
Just like Saturday in a big college town on game day, when people come to town for the game, they eat at restaurants and they stay in hotels and they buy merchandise. So religion was good for business in Mecca. So that was a religious and a business center. Uh, and so that's what Muhammad uh, grew up with. And uh, when he was 25, he met and married a 40-year-old widow by the name of Khadijah. And Khadijah was wealthy, and it gave Muhammad the opportunity to do what some other men on the Arabian Peninsula like to do, and that is uh, part of their life of leisure was to retreat to the caves in the area and meditate. And so Muhammad would do that. He would retreat to the caves overlooking Mecca. And on one of those occasions, while he was in one of the caves, uh, he claims that he was visited um, by the angel Gabriel. And the angel Gabriel terrified Muhammad. And the angel Gabriel told Muhammad, uh, gave him a verse and told him to recite. And Muhammad didn't know what to do. He was terrified. So Gabriel again says, recite. And then a third time says, recite. And what came out of that was the very first phrase or the very first verse that would become the Quran later on. Well, Muhammad was so shaken by that experience that he left the cave, he went home to Khadijah and to his family. Uh, he was in a cold sweat, he was shaking, and uh, he kept asking to be covered. So Khadijah covered him up and tried to calm him down, uh, got the story from Muhammad, and Muhammad thought that he had been visited by a jinn. Now, a jinn is where we get the word genie. It basically means an evil spirit. Uh, but Khadijah and other members of the family convinced Muhammad, no, you weren't visited by an evil spirit. Something very significant is taking place here. So over the next 23 years, Muhammad would claim visitations by the angel Gabriel, who would give him another piece of the Quran. He would recite it. He would commit it to memory and he would share it with his followers. And it was only after his death that all of these sayings were gathered together into what we know today as the Quran, which means recitations. So for 23 years, uh, he received these. Now for the first 13 years, uh, he was in Mecca. And his... Um, the recitations given to him, the revelations given to him, basically said there is only one God. There are not 360 deities. And uh, this one God, Allah, which means the God in Arabic, is the one to be worshipped. So Muhammad would begin to preach uh, this message of one God. And you can imagine how that went over in Mecca, where you had the 360 different tribal gods that were worshipped, and religion was good for business. 
and Muhammad's interrupting that. And the only thing that really protected Muhammad was this wealthy uncle who was very influential and part of the Qureshi tribe that was dominant in Mecca. Uh, other people would have liked to have you know, ridden him out of town on a rail. But he continued to preach that message and receive revelations. So part of the Quran is considered to be written in what's called the Meccan passages, or those passages he received while he was in Mecca. Now the Quran, which I have a copy of here, and you're welcome to look at, uh, the Quran is not written in any kind of chronological or even thematic order. It's actually very difficult to read. Uh, it's basically organized from the longest chapters to the shortest chapters as you move through. And so it's very hard to understand at times uh, what Muhammad is saying in the Quran, and that's why the Hadith, or these large collections of the words and the deeds of Muhammad are important because they help, help us tell where in history these came along. Uh, and also the Sirah or the biography of Muhammad helps us place where these passages come, uh, come to be. But those early, those first 13 years, um, the Meccan passages are largely passages of peace. In fact, they're almost exclusively passages of peace and religion and philosophy. And that's where when people quote from the Quran and they say, uh, Islam is a religion of peace. Uh, the Quran says there's no compulsion in Islam. In other words, you can't compel somebody to become a Muslim. And Jews and Christians are brothers. They're people of the book. Those all come from the early passages, the Meccan passages, when Muhammad was scared for his life. He wanted to live peacefully with the, the pagans and the Jews and the Christians who were around him. Well, he finally, uh, his uncle died and uh, he finally realized his life was in danger. So he and about 100 followers fled Mecca and went north to the city of Yathrib, which today is called Medina, and there he settled. And there he lived out uh, for about the next 10 years or so, uh, lived in Medina. When we read the passages from Medina in the Quran, that is where we hear phrases like uh, Jews, uh, Jews are pigs, Jews are filth, Jews are monkeys. Uh, kill the infidels wherever you find them. Cut off their heads if they won't convert. Very violent passages. And that's because when Muhammad moved to Medina where he was safe, he changed his whole method of operation. Rather than being a peaceful coexister, he became an aggressive dominator. He changed, in many respects, changed Islam from a religion to a political and military machine. Um, as he became more and more powerful, he spent a lot of time raiding caravans that came through and plundering their wealth and taking their women and children and selling them into slavery or taking them as wives for himself. Uh, and when he went from community to community in that part of Saudi Arabia, he would give them the option to convert 
or face the consequences. Now, for if you were a Jew or a Christian, you could uh, convert to Islam uh, or you could become a dhimmi, a second-class citizen, which means you acknowledge Islam is superior, um, you pay the jizya, which is an annual tax, which could be up to 50% of your income, and you had to shave your head and come on your knees when you presented it, and in exchange for that, you got to live and you got to have some degree of religious freedom. But if you were not a Jew or a Christian, your only options were convert or face the sword. So Muhammad sort of went from place to place and dominated them, controlled them, and converted them or killed them or drove them away or made them second-class citizens. He was particularly harsh to the Jewish communities because he presented himself to the Jews as another in the line of Old Testament prophets. When the Jews would not accept him as an Old Testament prophet because of his unbiblical views, uh, he became very angry and very harsh. There was one particular Jewish community where in a single day, um, they took the women and children, sold them into slavery, married them off, did whatever they wanted with them, but took the men and throughout the entire day beheaded them one at a time. Uh, estimates range from 500 to 900 Jews were beheaded in a single day while Muhammad uh, overlooked that, managed, managed that taking place. So he became very strong and very powerful in Medina and finally he was strong enough where he could come back to Mecca. During that period of time he was in Medina, he would raid the caravans from Mecca. Mecca would send people down to fight with him, and there were various battles that would take place. One battle almost took his life, knocked out a few of his teeth, and he was uh, disfigured somewhat uh, by a sword, uh, but survived. Um, finally he got strong enough, went back to Mecca, conquered Mecca really in a sort of a bloodless coup, went into the Kaaba, and destroyed nearly all of uh, the um, idols. Uh, some say he left an idol to Allah, which either is the God, his God, or it was also a name for the moon God. So some people believe he just substituted the moon God and made that the one God. It's really hard to tell whether that's the case. And then others say he left an idol that was to the Virgin Mary in the Kaaba. Uh, but he, he established the Kaaba as the place where Allah, the one God, would be worshipped. Um, he was fairly merciful to the people in Mecca when he came through and conquered, and they very quickly uh, converted to Islam. And so then he spent the rest of his life spreading the message throughout the Arabian Peninsula, and by the time of his death in 632 A.D., uh, he pretty much had the entire Arabian Peninsula converted to Islam. Now, uh, he died uh, in 632 AD without appointing a successor. And the circumstances surrounding his death are interesting. Um, it's quite widely accepted that Muhammad died of food poisoning. Uh, but who poisoned him is a matter of disagreement between different Muslim sects. 
One of the more popular stories is that when Muhammad conquered one of the Jewish communities on the Arabian Peninsula, uh, he took one of the Jewish uh, widows, he had just killed the Jewish man, took the man's widow uh, and made her a slave and had her cook dinner. Probably not the smartest thing Muhammad ever did. Uh, she proceeded, according to at least some accounts, uh, to poison the food. And a colleague of Muhammad took a bite um, and uh, continued to eat it, and he got sick very quick and died very quickly. Muhammad took one taste, and he realized something was wrong in the food and, and spit it out and wouldn't eat anymore. But the effects of eating that poison that was put in the food lingered and caused him to have uh, continuing medical problems, including really bad headaches uh, for the rest of his life uh, until he died. Others believe that one of his wives poisoned him later on. So it's really hard to know because the earliest biographies of Muhammad don't come out until about 100 years after his death. So it's hard to really tell in terms of a biography that's a hundred years later, how much of it has myth and legend rolled into it and how much is actually historical truth. But he died and then he was, uh, he didn't name a successor. And so there were other, uh, there was a difference of opinion who should rule over the Muslims. There were those who believed that the Ummah or the community should decide uh, who would succeed Muhammad, who would be the next caliph or ruler of Islam. And those people were known as the Sunnis. Uh, and then there were those who said, no, it needs to be a descendant of Muhammad and particularly through his first wife, Khadijah. And so those people were known as the Shiites. And uh, they went through quite, quite a battle in which for many years in which it was really dangerous to be a caliph because you didn't live very long. You usually got assassinated. But finally, that battle settled and the Sunnis won. The Sunnis who said the caliph should be determined by the ummah or the community. And uh, today, the Sunnis are the uh, dominant uh, sect of Islam. About 80 to 85% of all Muslims are Sunnis. Um, most of the rest are Shiite, mostly in Iran and some other places. And then there are some who are called Sufis, who are mystics, sort of the charismatic branch of the Islamic faith. And then within each of those, there are various sects uh, and organizations that exist. But the predominant ones are Sunnis and Shiites and then Sufis. So today, Islam has 1.6 billion followers, and the four largest Muslim countries are all outside the Middle East, Indonesia, Pakistan, Bangladesh, and India. Okay, next uh, slide, please. There are three primary texts that Muslims use uh, to live out their faith. There is, of course, the Quran, uh, which was given to Muhammad over a period of 23 years, a part of it in Mecca and part of it in Medina. It's considered to be the eternal 
word of God. And uh, it is as old as Allah is. In other words, uh, Allah and his word have always existed. It was given to Muhammad because monotheism, it was claimed, had all run into corruption. Jews and Christians were no longer proper monotheists. So Allah decided to give the Quran to Muhammad to bring true monotheism back. So you have the Quran, then you have the Hadith, and that actually is a plural word. There are many Hadith, uh, many different collections of the words and the deeds of Muhammad. And uh, some are considered to be widely accepted and some are widely disputed. So it really depends whether you're a Sunni or a Shiite, uh, which brand of Sunni, which brand of Shiite, which of the Hadith you, uh, you acknowledge. The most popular one is called Bukhari, and most Muslims accept, at least to some extent, the Bukhari Hadith. And so you lay the Quran and the Hadith together and they help understand when things were revealed and then how Muhammad lived out the things that were revealed to him. And then the last is the Sirah, and the Sirah is simply the biography or the life of Muhammad. Those things are all taken together, but for a Muslim, uh, they consider Muhammad to be the perfect man. That doesn't mean Muhammad is sinless, but what it means is that Muhammad is the perfect example of how a Muslim should live his or her life. And that is why many, if you are critical of Muhammad, uh, it will anger and quickly anger Muslims. I mean, you just do not criticize um, Muhammad. You could more quickly criticize Allah and get away with it than you could to criticize Muhammad. All right, next slide. There are several basic beliefs in Islam. Uh, first of all, belief in Allah, Allah is the one true and living God. Uh, he is eternal. He is transcendent. He's the creator of all. Uh, he is also so transcendent, so above his creation, that he is impersonal, unknowable, and unapproachable. Secondly, the prophets. Uh, Muslims believe that Allah has sent 124,000 prophets to mankind throughout human history. Muhammad is the seal of the prophets, the very last prophet that Muhammad would ever send. And that is why in some sects of Islam which claim that there are new prophets of Islam, they're considered to be heretical sects because Muhammad is the greatest and the last. Uh, beliefs in angels and demons. Um, Muslims have Strong belief in angels and demons. Obviously, they believe the angel Gabriel uh, brought the Quran to Muhammad. Uh, believe in demons as well. They actually believe that every person has two angels, two recording angels. Uh, one records their good deeds and one records their bad deeds. And on Judgment Day, the angels are called out to testify. Then there are the holy books. We talked about those, the Quran, the Hadith, and the Sirah. Uh, predestination, um, most Muslims, but not all, uh, are almost fatalistic in their belief in predestination. Uh, many times a Muslim will say something like, if Allah wills, 
Uh, I'm going to go here tomorrow if Allah wills. I'm going to do this if Allah wills. If something happens, uh, it's because Allah wills it. And so they really believe strongly in predestination uh, to the point where things are fatalistically determined, even where people spend eternity. And then there's final judgment. Uh, Muslims believe there will be resurrection and judgment of all people one day. And uh, just like in Christianity, um, uh, there are varying views in Islam about exactly how that plays out and how that happens. But they do believe in a paradise and they believe in a hell, a place of conscious uh, torment. Um, some believe it's eternal, some believe it's only for a period of time and everybody finally makes it to heaven. Uh, just like with different denominations and different cults of Christianity, a wide spectrum of views, but a common view is that there will be resurrection and judgment for all people one day. All right, next slide. Um, we have the Roman road. Muslims have the five pillars of Islam. If you want to attain eternity in paradise or heaven, you have to follow these five pillars. The first is the shahada, and this is a profession of faith. You say this publicly, you say it in the presence of other Muslims, and you say it with meaning. There is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is the messenger of Allah. Having said that, if you weren't born into a Muslim family, you become a Muslim. You've converted to Islam, but it doesn't stop there. You also have to take part in salat, or prayer. And that's 17 cycles of prayer spread over five different periods of time throughout the day. Then there's Ramadan. It is a month, a 30-day month, because uh, Muslims follow a lunar calendar, a 30-day period of time that commemorates the giving of the Quran to Muhammad. Then there is zakat, or almsgiving. You have to give some percentage of your income. It's usually around 2.5%, and that uh, sanctifies the rest of your income, and it goes to support the work of the local mosque. But just like us with the cooperative program, uh, they share with each other, and a portion of that often goes to support global jihad, what's given in the local mosque. And then last is the hajj, or the pilgrimage to Mecca. Every able-bodied and financially able person must at least once in his or her lifetime travel to Mecca and take part in a multiple-day series of ceremonies all centered around the Kaaba, that cube-shaped structure in Mecca. If, as a Muslim, you do these five pillars and you perform them faithfully day in and day out, then maybe, just maybe, that confirms that Allah has predestined you to everlasting life. All right, next slide, please. All right, one of the questions that's often raised is, well, don't Christians and Muslims worship the same God? Um, the answer to that question very simply is no. Obviously, we do not. Uh, but we have to explain that a little bit. So I just want to take a couple of minutes um, and 
uh, have us ask three personal questions. Uh, if you're a Muslim or if you're a Christian, you can ask these three personal questions and it will demonstrate that Christians and Muslims do not worship the same God. So if you'll go to the next slide, the first question is, does God know me? Well, what about Allah, the God of Islam? Muslims believe Allah is the transcendent creator of all things, that he's eternal, that he's all-powerful, and that he's all-knowing. Um, and uh, he knows everything about us. He knows who we are. He knows where we are. And he even knows us to the point where he has fatalistically determined our eternal destiny. But Allah is so great, so transcendent, so different from us that Muslims believe he is impersonal, he is unknowable, and he's unapproachable. In fact, um, you can Google this if you want. The, there are 99 names for Allah in the Quran, and none of those names is truly intimate. None of those names describes a relationship that you can have with Allah or that he can have with you. Uh, Muslims will say Allah reveals his will, but not himself. Now, what about Yahweh, the God of the Bible? Well, we believe God is transcendent, eternal, creator of all things. He's all-knowing, he's all-powerful, he's everywhere present. God knows everything and he knows every one of us. But unlike Allah, God is personal, God is knowable, God is approachable, and God is relational. In fact, he created us to have everlasting, unbreakable fellowship with him. So if we ask that question, does God know me? Muslims and Christians could say, yes, God knows me, but the other side of that, can I know God? Muslims would say no, and we would say, yeah, that's why God created us, it was not just that he would know us, but that we would know him. Next slide, please. Does God love me? Um, this is interesting. Uh, Muslims would claim that Allah loves those that he chooses to love and that he hates those he chooses to hate. And as you read through the Quran, you'll find passages like Surah 3, 140, which reads, Allah loves not those who do wrong. Well, that would put us in a lot of trouble because we all do wrong. We're all sinners, right? Uh, Allah, in another passage in Surah or chapter 4, uh, Allah does not love him who is treacherous or sinful. Uh, Allah also hates unbelievers, the ungrateful, transgressors, and wasters. And so Allah loves, Allah creates objects to love and he creates objects to hate and he fatalistically determines which is which. Well, what is the natural fruit of a belief like that? Natural fruit of that is gonna be salvation by works, okay? Uh, I don't know whether I'm one 
who's predestined to paradise or predestined to the flames of hell. Uh, but if I do the five pillars and I do them real faithfully and I do them consistently and I do them my whole life, well, then maybe, just maybe, that demonstrates that I'm one of the elected ones, one of the chosen ones. So Allah's love is conditional. In other words, if Allah loves me, it's because I do things that bring him pleasure and he's created me for that purpose. Well, what about Yahweh, the God of the Bible? The Bible tells us that God loves all people. Uh, John 3.16 certainly tells us that. John in 1 John 4, 16, that God is not merely love, does not merely love, he is love. That's in his nature and its character. With Allah, love is something he expresses on objects he created to shed his love on. With God, his love is part of his very being. It's part of his very nature. It's not just what he does, it's who he is. Paul writes in Romans 5.8, God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Uh, Allah hates sinners. Christ loves sinners and died for them. Uh, And I love what John writes in 1 John 4.10, here in his love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sin. God takes no pleasure in punishing the wicked, although he is a just God and he will do so. So we could say, does God love me? Um, For Allah, God loves who he created to love uh, and he sheds his love as an act of his will. Uh, But for the God of the Bible, he created us in love. He loves us all unconditionally And uh, he died for us while we were still sinners. Before we took any step toward him, before we did anything worthy of his love, he loved us and he died for us to redeem us. And that brings us to the third question in the next slide. Did God die for me? This is a, a rather curious question for Muslims. If you ask them, did God die for me? They would say, no. God did not, he will not, he would not die for us. Allah does not die for his creatures. He sends his creatures to die for him. And so it is a preposterous thing to suggest to a Muslim that God himself would die for us. Well, what about the God of the Bible? Well, the Bible tells us that... uh, Uh, God did die for us. He sent his son uh, to come in the likeness of sinful and fallen mankind to live a perfect and sinless life. He died on the cross. He bore our sin debt on the cross. He was buried. He rose from the dead on the third day to conquer Satan, sin, and death for us. And because of that, because the second person of the triune Godhead died for us, we can be forgiven of our sins and brought back into a right relationship with God. So we could say, to summarize, that only the God of the Bible is personal 
and knowable. Only the God of the Bible loves every person unconditionally. And only the God of the Bible sent his son to die for us. Which of those gods is more worthy of our worship? Well, let me stop there. There's much more we could say about Islam, but I want to stop here and give you a few minutes for questions and comments before we take our afternoon break. Yeah, Adam? Adam? 